Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and let's start today's broadcast if we may in verse 1 from chapter 2. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. So the background, very quickly, is concerning a church in modern-day Greece, a very carnal church, and it comes down to the reality of there being just three types of Christian. Number one, a carnal Christian, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Number two, a legalist Christian, like the crowd over in Galatia, that wanted to do religion, wanted to keep the feast days, wanted to somehow please the Lord with their carnal works, their vain works. And the third group of uh, Christians are those in the middle, those that are not perpetually carnal, neither perpetually legalistic. Of course, the third type of Christian can stray into both camps and many times will. But Paul, as an apostle to the Corinthians, as our apostle to the Gentiles, was very much up against it, and his ministry was very troublesome, very tiring, and it's fair to say that for those that are in ministry, they very much have to deal with people's burdens. They have to deal with uh, people's everyday issues. And I'll say this as a quick footnote, that I think it's fair to say that although the Jews are not saved, they have rabbis, and their rabbis have to hear people's problems on a daily basis. And although the Islamic mullahs are certainly not saved, they too have to hear people's problems on a daily basis. And the same is true of Catholic priests and Anglican priests. And again, neither of those people are saved, those groups of people are saved, and yet they have to hear people's problems on a regular basis. And that's why I think many people burn out, whether Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, or what have you, because people need to share their burdens, share their thoughts with others. And yet sometimes that may benefit you to offload on somebody else. And then uh, as a result of that, the person that you've offloaded on has to then deal with your problems on top of their own. Yes, we're told to share our burdens. That's very much the case. But we are also told to have a proper relationship with the Lord, take our problems to him, allow him to carry our burdens which Jesus spoke about from uh, Matthew chapter 11. But Paul, chapter 2, verse 1, determined this with himself. He said to himself that he wouldn't come again to them in heaviness because of the background concerning a man having his father's wife. And I believe that that incident uh, concerned this man having his biological mother. I know most people think it's in reference to a stepmother, but Paul made it clear from 1 Corinthians that that type of behavior wasn't even mentioned wasn't even spoken about amongst the Gentiles, meaning that he took his own biological mother for his own woman, his own wife. Had she just been his uh, stepmother, it still would have been unacceptable, but it wouldn't have been unheard of. But Paul doesn't want to arrive in heaviness. It's heaviness for him and it's heaviness for them because Paul is their spiritual father. Look at verse 2 from chapter 2. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which is made sorry by me? He's aiming this specifically at the man in question, and also he's aiming this at those that are in leadership, because this epistle, like 1 Corinthians as well, was addressed to the brethren, like chapter 1, verse 8. It's aimed at those that were in authority, and yet the leadership was very poor. And if you go to Galatia, like Galatians 1 to 6, they were on the opposite side of the spectrum. They were too legalistic. They were putting rules and regulations into the path of uh, believing people, expecting them to do works, to live a certain way, like grace is no longer grace. 
But verse 1, heaviness. Verse 2, sorrow, which goes back to those in the ministry, those that have frontline ministries. They are very much up against it. Not just concerning the devil's attacks, not just concerning our own attacks, like our old natures, but concerning those that we are in contact with, those that lean on us, those that need to confide in us. And it can be very tiresome, you know, very tiresome if you're not careful. Look at verse 3, please. And I wrote the same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is a joy of you all. He wanted to come on good terms. He didn't want to come on bad terms. He didn't want to be the bearer of bad news. He didn't want to get the stick out in a spiritual sense. He wanted them to deal with their own affairs. Found very clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But they're carnal. They're lazy. They are lukewarm as well, which is spoken of back in the book of Revelation. I ought to rejoice, latter part of verse 3, having confidence in you all. All without exception, but in the context, probably aimed at the eldership, that my joy is a joy of you all. He wants them to have joy. And if you're saved, you should have joy. You should rejoice in the fact that you are saved, in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in the fact that one day you will be in New Jerusalem. That's good news. There aren't many faiths that can offer you that. Verse 4. For out of much affliction... And anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which shall more abundantly unto you. Now the word affliction arrives. You've got heaviness, verse 1, sorrow, or sorry, verse 2, but verse 4, affliction. Anguish of heart, many tears, grieved, that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. So Paul was very much put into the lion's den. Paul was a Jew by birth, and yet his ministry was to the Gentiles. And Paul would lament over his own standing in the Lord from uh, Romans chapter 7 and Philippians chapter 3. And yet, I think it's fair to say when we look at Peter or John or James, other writers of the New Testament, yes, they were elders, yes, they would have experienced problems amongst their groups, but for some reason, Paul was chosen to really go through it He was picked by the Lord to really experience some of the pain, anguish, grief. Verse 4 again. For out of much affliction and anguish of hearts, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, I don't upset you too much, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. He knows they're dealing with this issue in a slow way, and he knows that there are upright people in Corinth. They're not all carnal, but most were. And the same would be true in Galatia. They weren't all legalistic, but most were. And like I say, if you are in that third category of neither legalistic or carnal, you too uh, may be a rarity. But he doesn't want to wear them down. Verse 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. So of course Paul was grieved. Paul was up against it. But he wasn't broken in the sense of being paralyzed. He would go through awful experiences. He'd be shipwrecked. He would be beaten. He'd be starved. He would be on the brink of death, which we looked at last time from chapter 1, verses 8 down to 11. And on the one hand, he is traveling around Europe. He's a man on a mission. And 
he's hoping that as he goes around, people are listening to what he's saying. And he's hoping that things are going the way that they should go. But this isn't an ideal world. This isn't a perfect world. Which goes back to the scripture. The scripture tells us how things should be. The scripture says how we should live. But many times we don't live like we should. We don't uh, step up to the mark. I mean, the law was given to show us that we're no good. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that's why from chapter 13, he will tell you to examine yourself whether you are in the faith, whether you are obedient unto all things. And most of us, when we examine ourselves, find many shortcomings, many failures. That's why we needed to be saved the first time around. And that's why we need to continue to be saved. Going back to what I said last time from verse 10 from chapter 1, how we were delivered from such a great death and we are being delivered and we will still be delivered. I'm saved. I am being saved. I'm going to be saved. Sanctification, of course, whereas justification means exoneration. Verse 6 from chapter 2. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So it would appear around this time that a man has repented, that he's turned from his iniquity with his, I believe, biological mother. But there's still some fallout in the camp. You may have some legalist elements still... uh, in the background, like I say, they weren't all carnal, but most of them seem to have been. And there were some super duper people in this local fellowship which didn't want to forgive him. They wanted to continue to punish him. They wanted to continue to freeze him out. Some were probably revolted. Some were possibly uh, disappointed. And yet the issue wasn't explicitly concerning those in the church. It was concerning the man and the woman in question, who we assume wasn't saved. And of course it would spill over into his local fellowship. Verse 7, So that contrawise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Too much sorrow will wear you down. Too much grief will put you into a depression. And this word contrawise is found several times in the New Testament. And it simply means in the opposite way, like anti-clockwise. So that contrawise, so that in the opposite way, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So like I say, some were retaining this uh, vendetta, perhaps, or this feeling of, is he really sorry? This sense of, why should we forgive him? Let's uh, excommunicate him. But when a man or woman turns back to the Lord and confesses his or her sin to the Lord, A, that person is cleansed straight away, 1 John chapter 1. B, you have to welcome that person back into your fold. In fact, James would say that you should confess your faults, not sins, but faults to one another. And when you do so, that person who confesses their fault, not sins, you don't confess your sins to other people, you confess your faults to other people, is then to be restored. And yes, there's a difference between sins and faults. Faults can be short-temperedness. Faults can be maybe lack of kindness. Faults can be maybe sharpness, maybe being too quick with your tongue, going back to James, making it clear that you should be careful what you say and how quickly you respond to a situation. But sins, you uh, confess to the Lord. You don't confess to a man in a box, you don't confess your sins to other people because they have sins as well. Going back to what I said a few moments ago, you know, if you 
offload on too many people, it can overload them. And then they may have a spiritual collapse, some kind of a crash, which is then going to be partly down to you, overburdening people. Verse 8, wherefore I beseech you that you will confirm your love toward him. Don't just forgive him in words, do it in deeds. Make it clear that he has been restored back into fellowship. Because if you don't make it clear to him, he may not think you've really forgiven him. He may think that people are still holding grudges. He may think that perhaps there's no hope. And I can't imagine how many people since the birth of the church have just been ostracized. They've been hurt by people, saved people. And they've gone from fellowship to fellowship and they've never really been welcomed. They haven't been welcomed. They've been frozen out and some have probably gone on to lose their faith. Now, I don't know whether or not those people were ever saved to begin with. I've always believed that if you are saved, you will always be saved. But my point is this. How we handle people as saved people, how we handle people's problems as saved people, like people that are saved, how we deal with their situations can be either very good or very poor. And that's why we need to be very careful how we deal with people, because like I say, the consequences could continue to deteriorate. One more time from verse 8. Wherefore I beseech you, I plead with you, that ye all of you would confirm your love toward him. He's repented. He's dealt with the incidents. He's turned back to the Lord, which is more than most people do. And now Paul wants them to receive him back into the fold. It's as simple as that. But again, some in this church were legalistic. Most were carnal. But some no doubt were legalistic. And probably in Galatia, some were carnal as well as being legalistic and yes you can be carnal and legalistic in fact you can be carnal legalistic and also somewhere in the middle that's what the judgment seat of christ is all about that's why there is a judgment seat of christ and i when i think about the judgment seat of christ i think of christ with the angels and i can see everyone from the church age being lined up to meet the lord which is a great event of course and yet before we meet the lord or before we go into glory we have to give an account of ourselves to him and i'm convinced that most people most say people get involved with sin or different levels of sin don't really care about it they're still saved of course and therefore they have to be chastised at the judgment seats of the lord but to avoid that paul tells you from first corinthians chapter 11 to confess your sins to the lord on a daily basis don't just shrug it off don't just say well it's no big deal i'm under the blood yes you are under the blood but if you just leave it, it will deteriorate. And when you have at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll have lots to answer for. Look at verse 9, please. For to this end also did I write, that I might have the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Obedience, going back to the law of Christ, which Paul mentions in uh, Galatians. We're not saved by the Ten Commandments. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. You try and keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, never mind the Sabbath, which was fulfilled in Christ. How about lying? Can you tell me in all of your years of being a saved man or woman that you'd never lied? Ever? How about stealing? You mean to tell me in all your years of being a saved man or woman, you've never stolen something? You've never copied something? You've never come across somebody's quotes online and taken it for yourself? That's theft. And some people have done that and don't even care about it. How about adultery? Just lusting? Is the same as committing adultery. Of course, the two are different, you understand. How about uh, dishonoring your parents? How about being rude or critical or unloving to your parents? It's all the same. 
What does James say? If we break one part of the law, we've broken all of the law. How about uh, blasphemy? How about taking the Lord's name in vain? And I don't just mean saying, oh my, or JC. If you behave in a particular way in public, and people see that, that's blasphemy. People say, that man over there, he says he's a Christian, but look at the company he's keeping. That woman over there says she's a Christian, but look at the company she's keeping. So many people, so many situations I could recall and recount. And some of these people that I can recall and recount, I believe are probably saved and were saved. And yet their testimonies were obliterated, were questioned, were cut down. Look at verse 10, please. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I like verse 10. To whom ye forgive anything, which suggests to me that nothing you do cannot be forgiven. I forgive also. Paul was their apostle. Paul was their spiritual father. And no, he wasn't called Father Paul. He was receiving uh, progressive revelations from the Lord. And that's why the apostles are part of New Jerusalem. That's why the 12 apostles of the Lamb's names are written in New Jerusalem. Number one, because they are Jews. Number two, because they were the apostles of the Lord. For if I forgave anything... To whom I forgave it, so he too will forgive anyone of anything at any time. For your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now, this description, the person of Christ, gets taken out of most Bibles, most modern Bibles. And you lose a lot of light from this piece of scripture. And I'll come back and discuss that in a moment. Lest Satan, the devil, should get an advantage of us. Get one over on us, as we say. Get an advantage of us or over us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So what the devil wants to do is get someone to fail, which is very easy. Most of the time we do the work for him. Number two, he wants to keep you in a state of failure, which is very easy because we help him many times. Number three, he wants to then cause people around you to freeze you out. He wants to cut you off. He wants to cause you to become a wandering Christian, isolated, if you will, struggling, never able to get any peace or joy. And in the end, you just turn around and throw the towel in. That's what he wants. This goes back to what I said a few moments ago. I don't know how many people from the beginning of the church until the rapture of the church have been just destroyed by what people have said and done. And I'll come back and discuss that in a moment. But the latter part of verse 10 speaks about how Paul forgave I, or how Paul forgave it, in the person of Christ. Now this term, in the person of Christ, means that Paul was on the earth as a representative of Christ. Paul being one of the apostles. Paul was sent by the Lord. Paul saw the risen Christ. But for today we have no apostles. We have disciples, but not apostles. And I will come back and discuss that very shortly. But what Paul really wants to drive home here is that whatever they do as a local autonomous fellowship, he will second it, if you will. Whatever they agree, he will come alongside them and second it. He will intercede for them. Going back to Matthew saying that, so the Gospel of Matthew, speaking about where two or three of you decide on anything, I will be there in the midst of you and I will also be in agreement with you. Going back to 
Whatever you agree on earth is agreed in heaven, and whatever you bound on earth is bound in heaven. So go to John uh, chapter 20, because I want to further elaborate on this forgiveness. Uh, If you speak to a Roman Catholic about forgiving sins or getting a person saved, they will say to you very simply that unless you are a Catholic priest, you can't forgive anyone. Unless you are uh, an ordained minister in the Church of England, for example, or a Greek or Russian Orthodox minister, you can't help anyone. What they say is this, that you have no authority. You are simply doing what you do off your own back. Now, that, of course, is incorrect. That's what we call private interpretation. But that's the belief that the Catholics especially have, like their priests are the successors of the apostles, which is ridiculous. John 20, John 20, look at verse 19, please. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, Sunday evening, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, say people, fearful, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. There's a word again, peace, which I made reference to last time from First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 2, how we have peace right now with God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, which, if you compare it to other faiths, is unheard of. Peace be unto you, in reference to the disciples, in reference to Sunday night, in reference to Resurrection Sunday. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. He wants them to see that he has risen. Because there was some unbelief, going back to Luke's account, Luke 24, concerning the two men on the road to Emmaus. It says how some doubted, and even Matthew picks this up from 28. So to see his hand and his side, to see the wounds in the hands and the side would be evidence that he has been raised from the dead. And therefore the disciples were glad. A disciple is anyone who is saved. Okay, if you are saved, you are a disciple of the Lord. But only an eyewitness to the Lord would be an apostle. An apostle means somebody who was sent. 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So like I say, apostle means sent. And here the Lord is speaking to the disciples, 1920. And he says to them once more, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. But it wasn't only the eleven that were present, because around this time Judas had killed himself. The seventy were also present. So the Lord is speaking to the eleven and also the seventy. And it's important that we get that clear, because Catholics believe that only the apostles are present, and therefore only the apostles could receive what they are about to receive. But that fails to understand that there were also 70 others that were present. 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. He breathed on them. You think of that account from Genesis, how the Lord breathed on Adam, and he became a living soul. Well, here the Lord, in the person of Jesus, has breathed on his disciples like the 11 like the 70 and it says once more receive you the holy ghost now 
they weren't born again until probably around now. On top of that, this is a down payment. They're going to get the Holy Ghost, but they won't be fully anointed until the day of Pentecost over in Acts chapter 2, which of course is a Jewish feast day, not a denomination. So he's going to breathe on them, and we call this a down payment, an earnest payment. And I made uh, the reference last time that when you got saved, if you are saved, you got the Holy Ghost, and that is your down payment. And when the Lord comes back for us in the rapture, we get the whole thing. We get glorified bodies, and we are forever with the Lord. But until then, we are living in a fallen world, living in our old bodies, dealing with our old natures. And at the same time, we have the new seed, which lives within us. And I said, it's a quick footnote that on my desk, I have an old Bible, which came out in the 18th century by a guy called Brown. And he says over in First John, that when John speaks about the seed, which is in all of us that are saved, John says that you can't sin. And this guy, Brown, and most uh, theologians struggle with such a passage. And Brown said that if you are a Christian or if you profess to be a Christian and yet still sin, you're not saved. But here's the problem. If you take that statement to be so, I would suggest that such a statement will clash with the rest of the New Testament. And for many years, I wasn't sure what to do with that piece of scripture because I've been saved 15 years and I've sinned. And I'm sure you have. And I thought to myself this, if the seed that is within us, which we get from the new birth, uh, results in us not sinning, then how do we deal with the old nature? And I thought nothing more of it until recently I came across another reference Bible. And I went to First John to see what this person suggested concerning that uh, piece of scripture. And he said quite, uh, quite simply that the scripture is in reference to the millennium. And I thought, yes, he's probably right. Because in the millennium, we are sinless. In the millennium, we have no old natures. In the millennium, we are redeemed. In fact, if you think about the main subject of the scripture, the main subject of the scripture is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, if you think about the judgments, if you think about people being executed, will all be over in minutes, no more than an hour or two, I would think. But once the Lord has dealt with his enemies, once the judgment has taken place on the earth, Matthew 25, then off we go into the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is at least a thousand years, and off we go into eternity. So I thought that the, the uh, explanation to First John about the seed being in all of us, which results in us not being able to sin, is really in reference to the millennium. It's not in reference to now, because as I keep saying, the Corinthians were saved, and many wouldn't repent, and that's why they are sleeping over in First Corinthians chapter 11, because they would not repent. But they're still saved. So I will stick with what I discovered a while ago concerning that particular piece of scripture being very much in reference to those in the millennium. 23 again. Whosoever sins, you remit, they are remitted unto them. So you tell somebody that they're saved if they believe in the Lord and they are saved. Christ is speaking to the disciples and also the 70. And I would suggest vicariously to all of us that are saved. And whosoever sins, you retain, they are retained. You say to someone, well, if you don't believe in the Lord, you're lost. You go to hell. It's as simple as that. 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, this is a mystery piece of scripture. Why wasn't Thomas present? You've got ten apostles, because Thomas is absent. 
you've got 10 apostles that have been breathed on. And therefore, Thomas misses out on this piece of scripture. But by Acts chapter 2, Thomas is with the apostles, along with Matthias. So they're back up to 12. And they are waiting. They are seated. They don't know what is going to occur. They're not praying, incidentally, for the Spirit of God to arrive. They are sitting patiently for the, or they are sitting patiently for maybe a, a word of prayer. I don't know. And out of the blue, the Spirit of God arrives. Now, it may be that they thought that he would arrive on Pentecost. They were all Jews, of course, and they, and, and they knew the Jewish feast days very well. But we don't know for sure whether or not they were aware that the Spirit of God would fall on them on such a day and at that time would get saved. And they were saved during the life of the Lord. They got imputation, but they weren't born again until perhaps John chapter 20, post the resurrection, and they certainly weren't anointed until Acts chapter 2. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Go back to Second Corinthians. So the Lord gives the apostles, being here the ten, minus Thomas and the seventy, authority. He gives them authority to do what they will do. Because for 10, 15, 20 years after his ascension, there's no New Testament. They are still receiving revelations from the Lord. They are still very much in Israel. They don't go out of Israel. They don't travel overseas until much later. And according to tradition, Thomas would go to India. And according to tradition, would be martyred out there. So don't be of the opinion that only the priest or the vicar or Russian or Greek Orthodox leaders can forgive someone their sins. And when you say that, or when we speak about forgiving someone's sins, we don't mean that we can do it ourselves. We mean that by the written account found in Scripture, we can share the good news with somebody who wants to be saved, that if they turn to the Lord, they can and will be saved. So I read verse uh, 11 again and close it for today. Lest Satan, the devil, should get an advantage of us, like, on the one hand, hold back the goodies, like, on the one hand, stop us from forgiving sinful Christians, and also stop us from trying to win souls to the Lord. For we are not ignorant of his devices. He had no trouble, back in the Old Testament, getting Adam and Eve to disobey the Lord. He had no problem getting uh, Ham Noah's son to show up his father. He had no problem getting Noah drunk. He had no problem with the best of the best. He had no problem with Abraham going into Hagar and causing her to give birth to Ishmael. He had no problem with anyone in the scriptures. He would come up, uh, or he, you know, he'd face Christ in the temptation, spoken of from Luke 4 and Matthew 4, and he would try and get Jesus to submit to him, which I may discuss at a later dates. But apart from Jesus, everyone else in scripture that I've ever read about, when they met the devil head on, failed. And maybe it hasn't happened to you yet, but it will. And that's why you're told to resist the devil. That's why you are told to stay in fellowship with the Lord. And yet, even when you do that, your flesh, your old nature is always there griping, trying to get you to do what you should not do. So I think for today, we'll leave it there in verse 11. And God willing, next week, pick it up from verse 12. So this is 2 Corinthians, and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This will be part 2. 
And Lord willing, we will conclude in Second Corinthians chapter 2. But uh, just want to spend a few moments tying up some loose ends of me and uh, draw your attention back to chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad but the same which is made sorry by me? Jump over to chapter 7, chapter 7, and look at verse 8, if you will. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were, but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry after godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. On the one hand, he was upset to have caused them grief concerning their indifference, concerning their inability to deal with sin. And yet, on the other hand, he wasn't overly concerned to have caused them grief because it needed to be done. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12. Look at verse 14, if you will, please. Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you and are not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. For the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul, as a parent, had a great love for his children in a spiritual sense. And again, nobody called him Father Paul. And yet, the more he loved them, the less they loved him. Which must be awful if you are a parent to have great love for your children. And yet, they don't love you at all. They love you much less than you love them. Go to, uh, go back to chapter 2. And I'll tie these verses up a little more uh, thoroughly if I can. But I determined this with myself. I would not come again to you in heaviness. Due to the indifference, due to the sin, due to sin in the camp. For, if I make you sorry, and he did, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which is made sorry by me? So, as they say, you have to be cruel to be kind. And that's just what he did. On top of that, from chapter 7, verse 8 to 10, you've got different levels of repentance. And also from verse 10, how godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, not to be regretted of, not to result in some kind of uh, unhappiness. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Like Judas Iscariot, he was sorrowful for being caught, but he wasn't sorry for what he did, unlike Simon Peter. So Paul, as I say, is a spiritual man. Paul was a godly man. Paul wanted the uh, Corinthians to get a hold of themselves. He wanted them to repent deal with the issue of the man involved with his mother and I believe his biological mother, hence why it wasn't spoken of in Corinth. But let's start today, if we may, from Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. I came to Trias, being Europe, to preach Christ's gospel. Not my gospel, not someone else's gospel, but Christ's gospel. Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ would anoint the apostles to preach the new covenant. 
But I like the latter part of verse 13. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Paul was an apostle. An apostle simply means somebody who was sent. And it would appear to me that the apostles were very much servants in the early church. They were sent. For example, you say, I want to take some leave, meaning I want to take time off work. And you have to apply to take leave. So when it says here, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. I am automatically reminded of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 16. And to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. The apostles were sent by the Lord, and it would appear to me again that the churches would also send the apostles out. They would ask them to go from A to B, and the apostles, like the Lord Jesus Christ, were quite happy to be servants to serve their communities and yet if you look at churches today if you look at people in organized religion if you look at people that like to dress up they very much call the shots in fact if you are an anglican you have no say as to who the archbishop of canterbury is you have no say as to who the archbishop of york is or other parts of the uk you have no say as to who your bishop is or even your vicar for that matter you are very much in a system run by people that have been appointed by those that are over you. But chapter 2, 12, a door was opened unto me of the Lord, salvation is of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit. Why? Because I found not Titus my brother. So Paul wanted Titus, his brother. Paul wanted uh, Timothy, his brother. Paul wanted Dr. Luke, his brother, to join him. Paul wasn't a one-man band. He would work with many others over his lifetime. And he goes from Troas to Macedonia, a man on a mission, like I say. Look at verse 14, please. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest a savour of his knowledge by us in every place. What a great scripture. Thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest a savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Go to Romans chapter 8. When you get saved, you are saved to service. And that means you need to fight for the Lord in a spiritual fight. And the biggest fight you would have to fight, the biggest battle you would have to battle is the old man. And uh, if you've been safe for any period of time, you know that your main enemy is yourself. But take heed, Romans 8, Romans 8, look at 35, please. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors for him that loved us. 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 14 again. Now thanks be unto God. 
which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Even if you are out of fellowship with the Lord, according to Romans 8.28, he is working in the background to bring you back into fellowship with him. And maketh manifest a savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Every place, always triumphing, uh, always getting the victory. We are more than conquerors. Tribulation can't separate us from the Lord. Distress can't separate us from the Lord. Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Nothing can separate us from the love of the Lord. Neither death, nor life, angels, principalities, powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, human or supernatural shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord picturing our salvation picturing every day of the week and don't we need it the more street work we do the more hostility we come up against the more we feel the hatred indifference which is aimed at us not personally because people don't know us personally but at what we believe what we stand for uh, look at verse 15 from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ and them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death and to the other the savour of life unto life. And to is sufficient for these things. You see a guy on a street corner. You see a woman giving out tracts. You see a sign. You hear the word of God being broadcast. If you're saved it's good news. If you're unsaved it's bad news. If you're unsaved, you are the bearer of bad news. If you're saved, you are getting a blessing. For we, verse 15, are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, like incense, like back in the Old Testament, because we are in the beloved. In them that are saved, present tense, and in them that perish. Two groups of people, you can't be on the fence, you're either saved or unsaved. To the one, we are the savour of death unto death. You bigots, get off the streets. Who do you think you are standing here? This town doesn't want you. We are quite happy doing our own thing. You are convicting us. It's party night. So I want to go out, have a good time. And semicolon to the other, the saver of life unto life. We can encourage somebody else. We can come alongside somebody who is saved and yet perhaps out of fellowship with the Lord and who is sufficient for these things. So these verses make it very clear to me that there are two groups of people and therefore to take a stand on a street corner may be difficult, especially if you are lacking sleep, especially if you are dealing with situations in your own life. And yet look at the bigger picture. What we are doing has eternal consequences. And it's very fair to say that 50 years from now, 75 years from now, 100 years from now, we will all be dead. And yet the tracts that we give out, the people that we speak to on a regular basis could get saved and they could go on to get people saved. Look at verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So we can say to somebody, for example, you believe the gospel, you're saved. You don't believe the gospel, you're lost. You want to go to hell, that can be arranged. You want to be saved, no problem. But here in the context, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it's dealing with sin in the camp. It's dealing with the man with his mother 
going back to what I said last week, that if you sin and you will, uh, if you repent, you'll be forgiven, restored and brought back into the fold. But also keep this in mind as well when it comes to the commission here from 2 Corinthians 10 and 11, going back to John twenty nineteen to 24, when Jesus would reappear to the apostles, he would breathe on them, which is a throwback to the book of Genesis. Thomas wasn't present. Paul wasn't even saved. So therefore, when Paul gets saved from Acts chapter 9, nobody laid hands on him, nobody commissioned him, nobody would anoint him. On top of Paul not being present, John twenty nineteen to 24, Paul would ordain elders who would ordain elders who would ordain elders, so on and so forth. We don't know who those people are. We don't know where those people went. So you've got a chain. You've got perhaps a chain going back to the Apostle Paul. And for many of those people, they could be living anywhere, doing anything we don't know. On top of that, the disciples of the apostles would forgive people's sins and they would go on to ordain people as well. The reason I want to make that point is because the Catholic Church are very keen to remind us, so-called, uh, those of us which are not Catholic, that they have the authority, they have the right to forgive sins. But John 20 again, it wasn't only the 11 that were present, knock off Thomas, but the 70 were present as well. And then keep what I said in mind about Paul getting saved later in life. But 2.10, in the person of Christ, verse 17, speak we in Christ. 13.3, Christ speaking in me. 5.20, we beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to the Lord. So Paul, as an apostle, had great authority and vicariously, so do those of us sitting around this table this morning. There is no physical priest car, a priest class system in the scripture if you are born again you are a spiritual priest a royal priesthood something which rome could never get clear in their minds look at verse 17 from chapter 2 for we are not as many which corrupt the word of god but as of sincerity but as of god in the sight of god speak we in christ we don't corrupt the word of god like modern bibles we don't correct the word of God like the Alexandrian scholars going back to the 19th century. We don't cancel the word of God like the Catholic and Mormon church with their spurious traditions. And there are many, many ways to corrupt, to correct, to cancel the scripture. I spoke to two gentlemen on the streets of Cheshire about 10 days ago. And the first chap walked over to me, a British chap had been a Christian, quote-unquote, had converted to Islam, and he told me that he'd done some research online. I thought, here we go. And he mentioned a guy called Karina to me. And uh, he mispronounced the man's surname, which doesn't really matter, but the point was this. I knew who Karina was. And he said to me, well, Karina said that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which is true, also Hebrew, which he didn't... Uh, like me to be reminded of but that's the fact he spoke in aramaic and hebrew and perhaps greek as well and therefore because jesus spoke in aramaic because he spoke in hebrew because the new testament was written in greek we've lost a lot of lights we can't trust the new testament 
And I thought, but if the Lord is sovereign, and he is, if he was able to inspire the word of God, which he did, if he's able to preserve the word of God, which he can, can't he transfer or can't he translate? Can't he go from one language to another without us losing any light, any truth? You mean to tell me that the Lord is unable to protect his word? And I spent maybe 25 minutes with this British man who had converted over to Islam, who was really a humanist. He was saying that every religion had truth. But I thought to myself this, someone like Karina, someone like Hans Kuhn, someone like Ratzinger, someone like Westcott and Hortz have done so much damage. You see, if you go online, if you start to research the Bible, there are thousands, thousands upon thousands of websites, mainly critical sites, mainly uh, having material by guys such as Rayner, an apostate Catholic, guys like Westcott and Hort, apostate Anglicans, and people like Ratzinger, the former Pope, and so many others. And these people will visit websites such as that, take statements like, he spoke in Aramaic, he spoke in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, we can't trust it, as an alibi to reject the gospel and yet wouldn't it be great if you come across our website? Wouldn't it have been great if you come across somebody else's website and read it and thought, wow, this is pretty good stuff. There is evidence that Jesus lived. There is evidence that the scripture is reliable. How about infallible? There is uh, good material for me to get my teeth into. Unfortunately, the internet is filled with lies, disinformation, by enemies of the cross, which corrupt, correct, and counsel out the word of God. For we are not as many, not a few, which corrupt the word of God, his written word, but as of sincerity, but as of God. In the sight of God speak we in Christ. And I said to this guy, how about John fourteen six? Jesus would say, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What does it mean to you? Well, it's Jesus speaking about the principle of truth. It's Jesus speaking about the philosophy of truth. It's Jesus speaking about the idea, the concept of God. I thought Carina again. Carina and Ratzinger and uh, Westcott and Holt and all the others have destroyed not only millions of people, but potentially tens of millions of people. Never mind the tyrants from the last century who killed people in a physical sense. They were lost anyway. How about killing somebody in a spiritual sense? How about putting material out there which undermines the Bible, which feeds back to Revelation 22. If you take from the word, if you add to the word, you get the plagues, you lose your place in your Jerusalem, and you also lose your parts in the book of life. I can't imagine what it's going to be like for someone like Carina, someone like Westcott and Hort, someone like James White, John MacArthur, John Piper. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Jacob Prash, the King James is a good Bible, but it's got flaws, it's got problems. And some guy finds that statement online, reads such a statement and says, well, that man went to Cambridge, that man went to Oxford. He's a very bright man. You haven't been to Cambridge, you haven't been to Oxford. You know, you're not even educated to the level of uh, biblical scholarship. What do you know about anything? I can't imagine what it's going to be like for such people at the great white throne judgment. Because they're not saved, of course. He walked away, and then five minutes later, a guy walked over to me, an ex 
an ex-soldier in the British Army, and he said to me that he was a Kabbalist. I thought, wow, I've been saved 15 years, and I've never met a Kabbalist before. And he was really really messed up, messed up, mixed up, not hostile like the Muslim chap, but really messed up. His brain was like scrambled egg. And I spoke to him for maybe 45 minutes, and it was the same sort of conversation. Well, much stuff online. We can't trust the Bible. Jesus was a good man. In fact, he told me that he went to an exorcism some years ago. Somebody was called to perform the exorcism. And he said to me in a very soft voice, but there's power in the name of Jesus. And I said, absolutely. But do you believe on him? Have you trusted in him? Well, he was a good man. No doubt about it. His principles, going back to Carina, were very you know, admirable, we don't want to, you know, criticize him, he was a good man, but I thought, you two have missed the simplicity of Christ, and I gave him John 14, 6 again, and I said to him, but what does it mean to you, and I said to him, Jesus is very uh, exclusive, there's one way to be saved, society is very exclusive, you try flying overseas without a passport, you won't get anywhere, there are rules all around us, why would it be any different when it comes to the Lord, but he too had gone online. He too had got caught up with the uh, Illuminati, which, yes, they exist, and we should be aware of them. The Club of Rome, again, we should be aware of them. The Jesuits, the Vatican, the Freemasons. And he made a lot of interesting statements to me, which may or may not be correct. I don't know. But I wanted to try and stay with the scripture. And I gave him other scriptures about hell, about salvation, how we're not good. He was a very proud vegan. And he thought that being a vegan would somehow uh, win him favor in heaven. And I said, no, it'll win you no favor in heaven at all. You need to be born again. Your heart's no good. I went through the law with him to show him that he's no good, that we are no good. But I thought, what are the chances of even two people in five minutes on the same street that have both gone online, both done their research and have both been corrupted? Verse 17 by people like Carina, people like Shillybeck, people like the Jason Scholars. I mean, anybody who corrects the King James Bible, intentionally or not, since the 1800s, I think falls into this category. One thing I'll never do is correct the Bible. I may be wrong on different things, fine. Judgment seat issue. But I won't correct the scripture for the money in the world. I'd rather say to you, I don't understand this verse and just leave it as it is. But these people, they are so intellectual. These people don't live in the real world. These people write book after book after book after book after book after book and make a lot of money from the sale of their books. In fact, they copyright their books. And yet Paul, 70 when he died, saved, 33, 34, I would imagine around the same age as Jesus when he died, wrote 14 epistles, if we give him Hebrews. He wasn't writing textbooks. He wasn't writing theological dissertations. He could have done. He was a very great man, a very bright man. But he knew that time was of the essence. He wanted people to be saved. He wanted people to be born again. It was imperative, absolutely imperative for people to be saved and to know that they were saved. For we, the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, John, are not as many, not a few. There are many that were corrupting it in Paul's day, and there are many that are corrupting it today, which corrupt the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, 
but as of sincerity, and he certainly was, but as of God, he's born again, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We have the authority from Christ as the apostles to say what they would say and to write down what they would be shown from the Lord because there were false teachers that were undermining Paul and back in Corinth there are false teachers online today that undermine Paul underline Jesus in fact some fruitcake came over to us a few nights ago demanding that we answer his questions demanding that we uh, open our Bibles and give him a Bible study on the street which we don't do and he said to me that Jesus never lived. And I thought, but how about Josephus? How about Philly the Younger? How about the Jewish Talmud? I guess all those guys were just lying, were they, when they said that Jesus lived and died? Why would they bother? In fact, even the Quran, written 800 AD, says Jesus lived. People are so quick to jump to conclusions. They are so quick to get their information from the internet. And as a result, damn themselves. And it's just deadly. It's depressing. It's devastating. So that will conclude 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And feeding back to 1 Corinthians. Looking at a church which was carnal, chaotic and filled with confusion. And yet in the midst of all that, he would reveal the rapture to them. 1 Corinthians 15. He would say from chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that anyone at any time could be forgiven of anything which is wonderful because if we could lose our salvation we would lose our salvation and Paul would push on trying to get people saved trying to also not get too bogged down with the false teachers that were undermining him and the other apostles and it's important that we do the same as well you can get caught up in these pointless arguments and many times people are simply wanting to score points over you so 17 verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and this will be a two-part look at a very difficult epistle, and yet a very personal epistle, written by a man who very much lived on the front line, went from hand to mouth, didn't uh, leave much of a legacy when it comes to the way of the world, and yet we are still reading his books 2,000 years on, studying them and trying to understand them. But the thoughts of being guilty of corrupting, correcting, or cancelling the word of God just fills me with dread. I know every uh, physical sin, every carnal sin is dealt with by the blood of Christ. But going back to Revelation 22, 18 to 19, makes me just wonder sometimes what's going to happen to such people. And not just a few people, but many people. In fact, I can't think of any church in the UK that is 100% King James, doesn't correct it, street preachers, once saved, always saved, premillennial, pre-tribulational, no speaking in tongues. Maybe somebody will contact me and say there is such a place, but as I sit here this morning, I can't think of such a place. Nearly every church that I can think of is either New Bible, anti-King James, anti-Eternal Security, this, that, tradition, ecumenical, interfaith, and as a result, they've nullified the scripture. One last time, and I'll close. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, and yet the word of God liveth and abideth forever, but as of sincerity, internally and also externally, but as of God, born again, and also sent from God, 
In the sight of God speak we in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, in the person of Christ. Verse 17, speak we in Christ. Chapter 13, 3, Christ speaking in me. 5.20, in Christ's stead. Going also back to progressive revelation. But with the, with the death of the apostles, with the conclusion and completion of the scripture, we don't need people anymore to reveal truth to us. We don't need theologians. We don't need scholars to help us out. We have the word of God as our guide. Just one quick footnote. Please go to Second Corinthians chapter 1, 1 verse 2. Just uh, look at before we wrap this up. First Corinthians, excuse me, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 13, please. For we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. As also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Number one, apostolic authority. Number two, they want to, the apostles want to rejoice with the early church at the judgment seat of the Lord. And the early church would also want to be rejoicing with the apostles at the judgment seats of the Lord. It wasn't Paul trying to win favour with people. It wasn't Paul trying to get a following. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John trying to start something new up. It was about Jesus. It concerned eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And yes, Paul did see the resurrected Christ. It was about people that saw something whose lives were transformed trying to share what they knew with other people, which is what we are here for this week. We're not here to push ourselves. We are trying to get people saved. We are trying to glorify the Lord. So when it says here, what you read or acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end, like the end of your lives, concerning his epistles, so on and so forth, as also you have acknowledged us in part. They knew that Paul was legit. He got the people saved. He got their wife saved. He got their families saved, and yet the people undermine him that we are your rejoicing because he's their spiritual father. He got them saved, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Which goes back to what I said a few moments ago that in eternity there are people that we will speak to over the next few days, weeks, months, years that could get saved, and as a result will be. Rejoicing with us at the judgment seats of the Lord. That's what this is all about. He that winneth souls is wise. We are trying to get people saved. We want to be soul winners. And the Lord allows us to do that. The Lord allows us to do that. That's not Arminianism. That's not decisional regeneration, which the Calvinists like to slander us with. It's what he allows us to do. Paul was a soul winner. Paul was their spiritual father. And I just want to make that point because that feeds back to chapter 2. Verse 10 to 11, forgiveness. And if you forgive anyone concerning their sins, but also concerning service in the church or local community, I'm there to second it. So keep that in mind, please, because like I say, this isn't a religion. This isn't us trying to lord what we know over people. This is about a relationship. In fact, a quick story. A lady came over to me yesterday. I would say she was 70. And she saw the banner and she said to me, I'm an ex-Catholic too. And I thought, wonderful. And she said to me, I'm also a priest in the Church of England. And I thought, a priest in the Church of England? Whatever happened? And she said to me, where have you been for the last 20 years? We've been ordaining women for 20 years. Of course, I know that to be the case. 
And I said to her, well, there are no female priests in the Bible. And she said to me, take your trap back. Shoved it in my hand and stormed off. 20 minutes later, she walked straight past me, eating some chocolate. Gave me a rather unpleasant look. But she's very typical of the sort of people that corrupt the word of God, which counsel the word of God, which cracked the word of God through their traditions, through their spurious traditions, through their systems. But that's not what we are here for. That's not what we do. And that's not the purpose of anyone who is saved. We're trying to get people saved. We don't want to push a system. We don't promote churches. And one last time, we will never, ever corrupt, correct, or cancel the word of God.